community of Overland Park, Kansas, came together in the spring of 1980 to look for 13-year-old Kristen Hobson. His father and stepmother were beside themselves with worry after the boy apparently ran off. But when the truth came out over the next few months, the community was stunned. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Hello and welcome. I hope everyone has had a good week. It has been a long month and we're in, what, the second week now? I've been working really hard on getting this new episode put together in between checking the news, looking at election updates, looking at COVID updates. It's been a lot. But let's go ahead and jump right into this case because tonight's case is a local one to me. It takes place in the Kansas City metro area. We will be on the Kansas side of the state line in this case in Overland Park, which is a very nice suburb of the city where 13-year-old Kristen Hobson was living in a townhouse with his father, Ed, and his stepmother, Sue Ann, as well as his stepsister, Suzanne. And one of the goals of this episode is not to mix up Sue Ann and Suzanne's names. We'll see how it goes. Ed and Sue Ann were each other's second spouse, so this was a new blended family in 1980. Ed had previously been married to Shirley Wilson, who was Chris's mother. Ed was 25 when Chris was born, and Shirley was 41. Though Chris was their only child together, Shirley did have two daughters, Tani and Lalani, who were several years older than their new baby brother when he was born in 1967. And this little family endured more than their share of tragedy in the years to come. In February 1973, while away at college in central Missouri, 20-year-old Tanny had been out at a bar, she was drinking, with a friend named Gary Hollinsworth. There had been some sort of argument between the two as they were driving home. And Gary got out of his truck saying that he was going to walk. Tanny started driving the truck, and according to her, she struck Gary with the truck on accident when he walked out in front of it. Gary died in this accident. Tanny's statement to police was accepted, and according to the media reports at the time, This was being treated as an accident, not an intentional act. However, Tanny was charged with drunk driving. Tanny was, as you can imagine, absolutely gutted, distraught, unable to cope with what had happened. Even as an accident, her actions had taken someone's life. Four days after Gary's death, after people tried and failed to reach Tanny by phone, she was found dead in her basement apartment with a shotgun nearby. Some reports say friends found her, others say it was her family. This was just a couple of weeks after Chris's sixth birthday. The police did rule the shooting as a suicide. Obviously, everyone took this loss hard, and Ed, in particular, had trouble coping with the idea that this was a suicide. 
but the family did what they could to move forward, though the marriage was on the brink. In September 1974, Ed and Shirley filed for divorce, and then Shirley was diagnosed with terminal cancer. At the time she died in March 1976, at 49 years old, she and Ed were living together as a family, which hopefully provided some stability for Chris, who was now nine years old. He lost his sister, and now his mother, and he was still so young. Ed, a millwright at a local factory, took to raising his son as a single father. He put a lot of energy into filling in the holes these considerable losses had left in this little boy. They did everything together. But Chris was struggling, and he was in special programs at school to help with his behavior. In 1977, Ed and Chris were regularly going to a local roller skating rink where Ed met Sue Ann Crum. They were both 35 years old. They were both single parents. Their kids were even the same age. So they had a lot to connect over. Sue Ann had taken a job at the skating rink on top of her regular full-time job to help support herself and her daughter. She had been divorced several years at this point. Sue Ann had been married to James Crum. They got together when she was pretty young. He was a construction worker who her well-to-do parents didn't exactly approve of. Sue Ann's mother was reportedly rather controlling with her only child. So at 19 years old, having a relationship with a man her parents hated was an act of rebellion, and it likely would have fizzled out on its own, except Sue Ann got pregnant. This is the early 1960s, so the socially acceptable options were limited. The two decided to elope. Sue Ann was raised by her parents to care about appearances and wealth, and she was having a hard time going from this materially spoiled child to the wife of a lineman with the electric company. She stayed home with their baby, which was a boy who they named James Jr., and James Sr. had to take on extra jobs to support the family and Sue Ann's expectations of comfort. For probably a number of reasons, such as her own upbringing and stress in her marriage, Sue Ann had trouble bonding with little Jimmy. But she had a much easier time connecting with her and James's daughter, Suzanne, who was born a few years down the road. According to Jimmy, Sue Ann was mentally and physically abusive to him. His high-energy behaviors were difficult for her to manage, whereas Suzanne was calmer and easier to please. The tensions in the home continued as the family's financial problems deepened, and then Sue Ann decided to leave. When Jimmy was around seven and Suzanne was around three or four, Sue Ann got a job and filed for divorce. Though she was granted custody of both children, she left Jimmy with his father. James Sr. spiraled after Sue Ann left. He developed an alcohol dependency, or he at least fell deeper into one that he already had. 
and he also lost his job. Unable to support Jimmy in any of the many ways children need support, the little boy was shuffled between relatives for the next several years. And in this time, he had no contact with his mother or sister. After the split, Sue Ann saw her son maybe two or three times. So when Sue Ann met Ed, it was just her and 10-year-old Suzanne, and Ed had his 10-year-old son, Chris. Sue Ann was not initially interested in Ed when they met. He was another blue-collar kind of guy, and she was honestly hoping to marry more in line with her upbringing and not really a clone of her ex-husband. But Ed had come into an inheritance that allowed him to do things like get a nicer car, get a nice townhome in Overland Park, and those things looked more interesting to Sue Ann. They provided a little bit more stability. She eventually agreed to go on a date with him, and the relationship moved pretty quickly from there. In December 1978, the two married. Sue Ann became the full-time mom to the two children, Suzanne and Chris. They were, like I said, the same age, but they were a grade apart in school. There were issues pretty much right away, as can happen in blended families, even before the marriage. Chris and Suzanne were both being raised as only children, and now they are learning to live with a sibling, and they had quite a few clashes. When the kids would bicker, they would enlist their parents to come into the argument. And it's hard not to take your own child's side or at least try to explain their point of view on their behalf. So obviously, now we have the parents involved in this bickering, and it does cause issues in the relationship when that happens. When Sue Ann met with one of Chris's teachers to discuss his progress in school shortly after the wedding, she mentioned she had actually considered delaying the marriage until Chris had improved more and things had just improved more. But Ed had pushed for them to go ahead and get married. I don't know how openly we talk about how difficult this dynamic can be. I know that on the online parenting boards that I used to go on back when my older kids were little, future and current step-parents would often get judged harshly and often unfairly for expressing any reservation about their commitment to their partner's children. And in this situation, Suanne was also assuming a more primary parenting role being a stay-at-home mom, and we can see this evidenced by her attending meetings with Chris's teacher alone. I want to be clear that I'm bringing Sue Ann's comments up to set up the dynamic in the house, not to judge step-parents out there who are struggling to connect and figure out their role in their stepchild's life. Absolutely not judging that. The point is, this wasn't the Brady Bunch. This wasn't some sitcom where everyone got along. And to add further tension to the newly married couple, this newly formed family, there was another big change that came. Sue Ann reconnected with her older son, Jimmy. It started with Suzanne, at age 12, being curious about her father and her brother. 
she reached out to reconnect, and she managed to talk Sue Ann into meeting with Jimmy. Sue Ann did have feelings of guilt for leaving him, and I'm sure those intensified when she realized the situation he was in. Though he was just 16 years old at the time, he was often on his own, living in poverty. He was barely making it in school. He was at risk for not graduating. He had also gotten in trouble with drugs and alcohol already, as well as petty crime. Sue Ann and Ed, after several visits with Jimmy, decided it was time to bring him into their home to try to get him back on the right path, and this was in May 1979. They got him enrolled in the local high school, and they pushed him to buckle down with his schoolwork. Maybe he could still graduate on time. Chris and Suzanne were both excited to have this cool older brother move in. But soon enough, things started going sideways. Jimmy made friends at his new high school with the same sort of crowd he hung out with before. And he was soon back to drugs and alcohol and petty theft. Less than a year after moving in with his mother, Jimmy was caught using stolen credit cards to buy shoes as well as bringing marijuana into the house. It was February 1980, and it ended up being Chris who found out about all this and told on him. Sue Ann reported the stolen credit cards to the police, and Jimmy was very quickly placed into some sort of probation program where he had a probation officer who he would meet with. Another consequence of this was that Ed and Sue Ann kicked him out of the house. At 17 years old, Jimmy dropped out of school and he moved into an apartment with an older friend. This was not a complete cutoff of contact like it had been when he was a little boy. Sue Ann would meet with Jimmy and she would meet with him with his probation officer. So while Jimmy wasn't allowed to live under her roof, there seemed to be more of an attempt to continue to parent him this go-round. So the house was back to being Ed, Sue Ann, Suzanne, and Chris. About six weeks or so after Jimmy moved out, on Thursday, April 17, 1980, Sue Ann met Ed for dinner while leaving Chris and Suzanne at home doing their homework. When they got back home around 8.30 p.m., Chris was gone. They asked Suzanne where he was, and she said that he was home when she went to take a shower at 6.30, but he wasn't there when she got out of the bathroom later. Ed checked to see if Chris was down in the basement, perhaps, which he wasn't, but Ed noticed that his 12-gauge shotgun was missing. This immediately alarmed him, and I'm sure he had a quick flashback to... Tanny's death by shotgun. Ed went through the townhouse complex to look for Chris, and when he couldn't find him, he called the Overland Park Police Department. The police came out to the home. They asked the usual questions, like, did Chris have any reason to run away? Ed admitted there was some step-sibling bickering happening and some tension, but it wasn't any more than any other family would deal with. There hadn't been a big blow-up or anything like that that he would consider something Chris would run away over. 
The next day, Sue Ann went to Chris's school and asked the teachers if Chris was having any issues at school. Anything that would have happened that would make him want to take off, a reason he wouldn't want to be at school on Friday, anything. But the teachers weren't able to help identify a motive for running away. If anything, Chris had been doing better than ever at school. He was happier, and he was taking on more responsibility at school. When word got out of a missing 13-year-old, the community really rallied. There was a major search in the Overland Park area, the largest ever at that time. The police searched the creek that ran behind the townhouse and the woods and the fields in the area. A lot of this area is now developed. For local listeners, they lived just north of the Top Golf on Knoll Avenue. But in 1980, back then, this was a lot of fields and woods. There were a lot of places Chris could have disappeared into. And with that missing gun, the family history of suicide, and Chris's own trauma, there was reason to be concerned. The searches, however, gave no clue of where Chris went. There was no sign of him anywhere, no scraps of clothes, nothing. There were no signs at the home that anything had happened there. No one heard anything like screams or a scuffle to indicate an abduction. It really did look like Chris had run away. They just didn't know where he was. The theory that this was a runaway situation was bolstered in many people's minds when. About a week after Chris went missing, his school called his dad. Someone at the Metcalf South Mall had found Chris's wallet. They called the school since the identification card found in it was Chris's school ID. Ed then reported the found wallet to the police. For some, this was evidence that Chris was in town and alive. And it was backed up by other alleged sightings of him at a skating rink and at the local Kansas City amusement park called Worlds of Fun. No one had reported seeing him at the mall, but it was only two and a half miles from his home. And this is tangible proof he had likely been there. But at least one investigator actually thought this pointed in the other direction. If Chris was out on his own, with absolutely nothing to his name, Why would he be so careless with the one thing he had, his wallet? How was he getting by? Was it possible he dropped the wallet on purpose like a breadcrumb? This was just not making sense, and sometimes it's the evidence that doesn't make sense that throws up the brightest red flags. It would only take a few days for the next tip to come in that dashed everyone's hopes that the wallet was assigned Chris was okay. This came in on May 1st and was placed by a teen girl we will call Lori. She told investigators that she had information on the Chris Hobson case. Her and half the city, to be honest, tips and sightings were something the police had a lot of. But Lori's tip got their attention. 
She said that right around the time Chris went missing, she was at a party with her friend, 16-year-old Paul Sorrentino. He started bragging about how he had taken out and killed the missing kid. Lori wasn't sure how serious he was since Paul wasn't known to be violent. He did do drugs and got into petty theft type stuff, but murdering a 13-year-old is an entirely different story. Lori weighed what to do, and eventually it just nagged at her enough that she had to call the police to tell them and let them investigate. If Paul didn't do it, they'd figure that out. The key to why the police believed this tip above and beyond any of the dozens of other tips was that Lori knew something not released to the media. She said that a shotgun was taken from the home at the same time Chris was. That had absolutely not been reported anywhere. So clearly, this tip was coming from someone with actual information. But the police didn't want to act too early and tip Paul off, so they asked Lori to come in and call Paul from the police station. In the pre-color ID days, it would be easy for her to just pretend she was at home when she made the call, and the police could listen in and record. Kansas is a one-party consent state, so if one person on the call knows it's recorded, it's perfectly legal. The police did not need to have a warrant. Lori called Paul on May 2nd and asked more details about the murder. Paul hesitated to say much. Lori pushed a little, and Paul gave some little details that confirmed he knew what happened, but there was nothing earth-shattering. There was nothing that was the evidence they needed. He couldn't even seem to remember where he had left Chris's body. But then Lori asked him a very important question, and she asked him why. Why did he do it? And Paul said he did it for his friend, Jimmy Crum, Chris's stepbrother. This is what the police needed, and it would be enough for them to act on. But before they even had time to act, the next day, they got a call from a coroner about an hour south of Overland Park. A body had been found. Two teens were out fishing in a rural area when they went out looking for more worms. They saw a mound of dirt in the woods that looked odd, and they went to go check it out. They noticed there was a piece of cloth sticking out, and when they poked around a bit, and I mean literally poked with a stick, they realized there was a body. They ran home, and their parents called the police. Though the body did not have any identification, they did know it hadn't been there very long. Using the general description, they got a hit on Chris's missing persons report. Dental records confirmed that this was Chris Hobson. He had been dead the entire time he was missing. All of those sightings were wrong. Chris had been shot three times, once with a 12-gauge shotgun and twice with a 20-gauge. And a 12-gauge is what was taken from the family's basement. The police brought Paul Sorrentino and Jimmy Crum in for questioning. 
as well as bringing the Hobsons in to break just the awful news to them that they had found Chris's body. When Paul was questioned, he didn't have much to say. When they played him the recording of his call with Lori, he had even less to say. Pretty much all Paul said was that he wanted a lawyer. Jimmy Crumb, on the other hand, he had a lot to say. Though his initial statement to police included things that would lessen his culpability a bit, he did confess to being involved in Chris's murder, and he would eventually get the whole story out and take on the blame for his own role in things. Jimmy said that he arrived at the Hobson home with Paul while his mother and stepfather were gone on April 17th. He told Chris that he was there to pick up some of his things that he had left behind and his mom said it was okay. Jimmy went down to the basement and got a shovel and a shotgun and put both of these things in the trunk. Jimmy went back inside the house and asked Chris if he wanted to go along with him while he and Paul did something illegal. Either it was a drug deal or a drug theft or something along those lines. Chris, excited to do pretty much anything with this cool older brother, eagerly went along. I don't think it's any wonder why they lured him out with the idea of doing something bad. If it was to go to the movies, he might have told Suzanne he was leaving the house, or he would have insisted on leaving a note for his parents. But since it was something that he wasn't supposed to do, with a person who had been kicked out of the house, Chris left without leaving any indication of where he was going. Jimmy said they drove about 45 minutes into a rural area and pulled off into the woods. They told Chris to start digging a hole, which he did. Jimmy couldn't really remember what the exact reason they told Chris that they were digging a hole for, but whatever they said, it was convincing enough to a 13-year-old. Paul even took a few turns with the shovel and Jimmy thought they were there for about an hour. It was long enough that Chris began complaining and getting nervous that he'd be in trouble for being out so long. When the hole was big enough, Jimmy and Paul joked to Chris that he should get in it and try it on for size. Once Chris was sitting there, the two counted to three with Jimmy saying one, Paul two, Jimmy three, and then Paul shot Chris. Jimmy fired next with the gun stolen from the house, and then as Chris moaned, Jimmy told Paul to finish him, which he did. They then threw the dirt back over Chris's body. They disposed of the shovel and Ed's shotgun before they headed back to Overland Park. Jimmy's final version of events, when you take all of his statements and various testimonies together, lined up with the evidence at the scene and with what the tipster Lori had said. And after hearing this absolutely outrageous and cruel story from the start, they asked Jimmy the obvious question, why? 
Jimmy said he was angry at Chris for ratting him out and getting him kicked out of the house. But that was only the reason he was willing to kill Chris. The real reason he killed his stepbrother was because his mother told him to. According to Jimmy, Sue Ann hated Chris even more than he did, probably. She saw him as an obstacle in her life and in her marriage. She complained to Jimmy that Chris was so out of control that he was hitting her, he was hitting Suzanne, and recently, she claimed Chris had started spreading very nasty rumors about Suzanne at the junior high they attended together. On several occasions after Jimmy had reconnected with his mother, she made comments to him that something had to be done about Chris. In the fall of 1979, Sue Ann was talking about having him sent to military school or possibly even to a mental institution. She hoped to have him out of the house by Christmas, so according to Jimmy, she wouldn't have to spend money buying him gifts. Also, according to Jimmy, April 17th wasn't the first time Sue Ann attempted to have Chris killed. Earlier, she had mixed some type of sedative into ice cream, but it didn't do anything. Jimmy said he tried to back out of killing Chris a few times, but Sue Ann would push him back into it. And after he enlisted the help of Paul Sorrentino, Jimmy couldn't seem to call it off again. Paul was all in. Sue Ann had promised to get Jimmy a car and pay Paul over $300 if they killed Chris. Paul really needed that money for some motorcycle repairs. So Jimmy said he would come up with alternative plans and suggest them to Paul, things like just abandoning Chris in the woods or putting him on a bus somewhere with no way to get home. Paul would say no, he wanted the money for his motorcycle. Jimmy said Sue Ann had coordinated much of the plan by picking the night they were to go get Chris. She arranged to meet Ed for dinner on purpose to keep him out of the house later. She had even taken Chris's wallet and dropped it at the mall so the police would assume he was a runaway. Of course, with Sue Ann and Ed at the police station already as they're getting these statements, the couple was separated, and Sue Ann was interviewed late on May 3, 1980. Sue Ann admitted to the police that she knew Jimmy was involved in what happened to Chris, but she made no admissions to knowing anything beforehand, let alone planning it. She said she learned from Jimmy at some point after Chris disappeared that Chris had been killed, and he told her not to tell anyone. She did not tell anyone because she wanted to both protect him, because she loved him, but also they were in fear of Paul Sorrentino retaliating against them if they told. In her desire to protect Jimmy, she admitted she did plant the wallet at the mall. But she insisted she was out with her husband at the time of the murder. She had absolutely no involvement ahead of time and she denied that she promised Jimmy or Paul anything in exchange for killing Chris. 
In her statement to police, Sue Ann did make a few comments that brought her 13-year-old daughter, Suzanne, into things. Nothing major, just things like how Suzanne was with her when she planted the wallet at the mall. But it was enough that investigators wanted to speak to Suzanne, and surprisingly, Sue Ann immediately said yes, they could speak to her at the family home. It was early in the morning, not quite 6 a.m. on May 4th, when they went to talk to Suzanne. But after she made some statements incriminating her mother, they decided to bring her to the police station so they could tape record the interview, a decision that was both incredibly smart and would prove vital to the case they were building. In her 12-minute recorded statement, Suzanne told the investigators that Chris was causing trouble at the house and in her mother and stepfather's relationship. The morning before Chris was killed, she was with her mother when Sue Ann and Jimmy talked in the parking lot of his apartment complex. Suzanne heard her mother tell Jimmy that she would get Ed out of the house that night. Sue Ann said Jimmy and someone else were to take care of Chris. Suzanne was asked if she heard anything about killing Chris, and she said no. The word kill, murder, none of that, nothing that direct was said. But later that day, Sue Ann told Suzanne what time to get into the shower so she wouldn't be around when Jimmy picked Chris up. The investigators asked her what she thought when Chris never came home, and she said she assumed Jimmy had killed him. And a few days after Chris went missing, Sue Ann told her that Jimmy took care of him, which she obviously interpreted as Jimmy murdered Chris. So Suzanne is giving something very important here. Yes, they have Jimmy implicating Sue Ann in planning the murder. They have all this information already from Jimmy, but he's a co-conspirator. They needed more than that for a conviction, and now they have a third party saying that she overheard this very damning conversation, as well as having her mother tell her what time to get into the shower. Even beyond that, Suzanne said that Sue Ann dumped the wallet on the day Chris went missing, which would have given Jimmy no time to confess to her. That would mean that Sue Ann would have known all along what was going to happen. The planting of the wallet would have been part of the plan. Armed with this new statement from Suzanne, the detectives had a second go at Sue Ann. Sue Ann now admitted that what Suzanne said about the conversation with Jimmy was more or less true, but it was being misinterpreted. Chris had been causing issues in the home, and Sue Ann was asking Jimmy to take care of the problem by talking to Chris. She wasn't telling him to take care of Chris. At worst, she thought they would rough him up a little so that he would at least start leaving Suzanne alone. So yes, Sue Ann knew something was happening that night, and she set it into motion. 
but she completely denied that she ever intended or told them to kill Chris. She didn't know that they did that until after. And Sue Ann denied that she brought the wallet to the mall until the next day when Jimmy came to her and admitted Chris was dead. The police did not believe her, and Sue Ann, Jimmy, and Paul were all arrested and charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Sue Ann bonded out, and Ed divorced her with it being finalized within a few months. But he almost immediately regretted it. By the end of 1980, they had divorced and remarried after Ed promised to get some grief counseling and to quit drinking. So this man had just lost his son to murder after losing his first wife to cancer and his stepdaughter to suicide. So I don't think it's too hard for us to feel sympathy for him. But it's also baffling that he remarried a woman who stood accused of killing his son. Ed, however, decided to stand by Sue Ann. He believed her when she said she was not guilty. Now 18 years old, Jimmy Crumb's trial went first in early 1981. There was some back and forth about a plea deal in exchange for his testimony against Sue Ann, but nothing satisfactory to both sides and the judge was ever found. The case was going to trial. Jimmy pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity with his defense team stipulating to the facts of the case as he confessed to them. They just wanted to get this kid some help. Sue Ann was called to testify, which was a sticky situation. Any testimony she was compelled to give could violate her Fifth Amendment right to keeping her mouth shut. However, their defense was that Jimmy was so manipulated or brainwashed by her that he was not legally sane at the time of the murder and they wanted her to testify. This went back and forth, but eventually it was determined that Sue Ann would testify, but she could not be asked anything about the lead-up to the crime or the murder itself. She was only going to be asked about Jimmy's childhood, including her own abandonment of him. Jimmy testified in the trial and told the same story he told the police, but for the urging of his mother, he would not have killed Chris. The psychiatric testimony talked about his alcohol abuse, the dynamic of his relationship with Sue Ann, previous mental and physical abuse, and how he was hyper-suggestible. One psychologist testified that Jimmy wanted to win his mother's love so badly that he would do almost anything for it. He also felt that if he won her love, then he would be free of her control since that was the thing he was trying to get from her. We have two state experts testifying that Jimmy did not meet the legal definition of insanity. They testified that he knew right from wrong, he understood what he was doing, and he knew what he was doing was wrong. Those are the three things he needs to know, and he knew all of them. The defense had three experts testifying to essentially the complete opposite. 
In the end, the jury sided with the state, and Jimmy was found guilty. But his attorneys were still focused on getting him psychological treatment, something he wouldn't necessarily find in state prison. So there was some talk of consideration in sentencing if he testified against his mother. And that would also include court-ordered psychiatric treatment while he was serving his sentence. The judge turned down the plan, and Jimmy was sentenced to 15 years to life. Jimmy decided he was not going to voluntarily testify against his mother, and they couldn't force him, so he was ready to just head off to state prison. Then, in mid-July 1981, 18-year-old Paul Sorrentino struck a plea deal. This is the person who didn't know Chris. He's the person who actually fired the fatal shot. He's the person who had no motivation to kill a 13-year-old other than to get the money for some motorcycle repairs. He was essentially a teenage hitman, and this is the guy that gets a plea deal. Paul pleaded guilty, but ended up getting sentenced as aiding and abetting the murder rather than being a principal actor, which he was. This meant instead of having to serve 15 years before being eligible for parole, he could actually apply for parole after more like eight years. When he took the deal, he had already done a year in pretrial detention, so he only had seven more years before he could apply for parole. In exchange for this deal, Paul did have to testify against Sue Ann. But Paul's testimony against Sue Ann didn't have a lot of connection without Jimmy in between because Paul had never actually spoken to Sue Ann about this. It was always through Jimmy. So it was a huge win for the prosecution when Jimmy changed his mind and offered to testify against his mother. It was too late for him to get anything out of it. He had already been convicted and sentenced. But what changed his mind, at least in part, was the pretrial publicity. It was clear that Sue Ann's defense was going to be to point the finger at Jimmy and Paul alone and really just paint Jimmy as an unstable young man. And that's exactly what happened at Sue Ann's April 1982 trial. Let's do like we always do and hit the testimony highlights. One person who testified was Ed Hobson. He is both the father of the victim and the husband of the accused. He testified that his son and his wife got along well, and being in the home, he saw the little ways they interacted that showed that they really loved each other. He believed Sue Ann was innocent. But Ed's testimony would be undermined by others. A teacher from the school testified, as well as Jimmy's probation officer, and they both talked about Sue Ann complaining about tensions in the home due to Chris. The probation officer said that she had actually met with Sue Ann and Jimmy just a few days before Chris disappeared. In that meeting, Sue Ann said that the home life was a bit tumultuous due to Chris, and she wanted to separate from Ed, but she couldn't afford to. The PO went on to testify that Sue Ann appeared to be angry with Chris as she talked about some of the family's issues. Another person to testify about Sue Ann's relationship with Chris was her former friend Marjorie Fugate. 
Marjorie said that ever since Sue Ann started dating Ed, Chris was a topic of their conversations. In the spring of 1980, according to Marjorie, Sue Ann told her that she hated Chris and she wanted him out of the house. In one conversation in particular, Sue Ann asked Marjorie if she knew anyone in the mafia and if she knew how much a hitman cost. Then she asked if Marjorie had ever heard of the last name Sorrentino having any ties to the mob. So this testimony is linking Sue Ann to Paul, or at least the knowledge that he would be involved in something related to Chris. Maybe the state even hoped the jury would interpret this as Sue Ann choosing Paul as the person Jimmy got to help. Marjorie continued her testimony by saying that on April 18th, that would be the day after Chris went missing, Sue Ann insisted that Marjorie go out with her to celebrate Chris being gone. While they were out, Sue Ann even toasted to his disappearance. This portrayal is a far cry from the worried stepmother with a missing kid. It's also far from the portrayal that she was a scared mother trying to protect Jimmy after he confessed to her that he was involved in Chris's murder. But the defense questioned Marjorie's credibility. Sue Ann had a civil judgment against her for allegedly stealing more than $40,000 in jewelry from her. This was a default judgment because Marjorie didn't show up in court. So that's why I'm saying she allegedly stole the jewelry. But the judgment against her was very real, and it may have motivated her to lie in court against Sue Ann, according to the defense. Now we have Jimmy testifying. His testimony, two years after the murder, was not entirely consistent with his statement to the police. Like I said before, Jimmy said things during that initial police interview that would lessen his own culpability, which is a pretty normal thing for suspects to do. But it does undermine your credibility after you've already lied once. Jimmy also admitted on cross-examination that he was drunk at the time, he made the statement, and he confirmed his criminal record. So the defense is poking holes in the credibility of the state's witnesses. Pretty basic strategy. We see this in every trial. Another key witness was Suzanne Crum, who at this point is 15 years old. She was an independent witness to her mother and Jimmy planning to take care of Chris on the day he was murdered. Here we are two years after Chris's death. Sue Ann had been living with Suzanne for most of this time, and Suzanne's story had changed. She testified that when she and her mother went to the apartment complex parking lot to talk to Jimmy, she stayed in the car. She actually hadn't heard anything. The state began questioning Suzanne about the changes in her story, and the defense objected to the leading questions. On direct examination, you can only ask open-ended questions. The judge first had the prosecution show Suzanne a transcript of her recorded interview to refresh her memory. But Suzanne said she remembered what she said to the police, and the judge noticed that she didn't really read the transcript that they provided for her. 
So that's when the judge ruled Suzanne was a hostile witness. A hostile witness is something we have heard during our hours of law and order binging, but let's pause real quick to define it. A hostile witness is someone you have called on your side of the case, but their testimony is actually adverse to your case. With direct testimony, like I said, you can only ask open-ended questions, not leading ones. So you can't really challenge this witness. But if you have them deemed a hostile witness, you can actually cross-examine them even though they are your witness. This allows the lawyer to then ask those leading questions. So instead of being restricted to asking Suzanne what she heard, the prosecution could ask questions like, isn't it true your mother told Jimmy to take care of Chris? And did you tell the police you believed Jimmy killed Chris? It's a really big deal in a case. If the state was stuck to asking Suzanne those open-ended questions, she could have just said no, and I didn't hear anything, and the case is over. Having someone declared a hostile witness is often used when a witness changes their story on the stand. Being able to ask these leading questions, Suzanne admitted to what she told the police, but she offered explanations to what she said trying to change their meaning a little bit. And then she said she just lied in the interview. So then the tape of the police interview was played for the jury, and I imagine it had an impact. This wasn't just a witness statement that was written up, that the witness signed, and was read to the jury. This was the actual recording of Suzanne audibly sniffling and crying as she's recounting what happened. It hit differently than a transcript would have, than a statement would have, especially if we are trying to decide, do we believe Suzanne then or Suzanne now on the stand? The officers taking her in to record that interview was vital in this case. I have no doubt most people listening to that tape believed Suzanne was telling the truth then. But before we judge her too harshly, for changing her story, let's remember she was 15 years old. This is her mother. While we can say perjury is never okay, I think we can understand and have some compassion for her on why this is the choice she made. So let's move on to the defense case. The defense called lots of witnesses, and the first one was Sue Ann herself. She cried through parts of her testimony, talking about how much she loved Chris and that he even called her mom. She admitted she wanted Jimmy to talk to Chris about spreading rumors about Suzanne, but that she didn't want him dead or hurt. She didn't say get rid of Chris, but rather get rid of the problem, which meant his behaviors, not him as a person. Sue Ann testified that Jimmy came to her afterwards and told her that Chris had been killed, but that it was Paul who had gone berserk. Paul then threatened to kill all of them if they went to the police. Sue Ann then testified that it was Jimmy who took the wallet to the mall, not her, which is in direct contradiction to her statement to police. She said she lied to the police, saying she's the one who took the wallet in order to protect Jimmy but I'm not really sure what she means by this because 
this kid just confessed to murder and she's trying to protect him from evidence tampering charge? That doesn't make a lot of sense. But this wallet was a thread throughout the trial. It's a whole matter of what did Sue Ann know and when did she know it? Did she leave the wallet at the mall the day Chris disappeared, meaning she knew to plant the evidence? Or was it the day after? Or was it, as she's saying now, never, that Jimmy did it and she didn't do anything? Ed had testified that he saw the wallet in the bedroom the night Chris went missing. But here's another thing that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If he saw it the night Chris went missing, and then it showed up at the mall a week later, Ed should have immediately realized that someone in his house was behind Chris's disappearance since he knew Chris didn't have his wallet. But he didn't seem to connect these things until Sue Ann needed that testimony to support her case. I don't know when the wallet was left at the mall. It's a piece of the case that will just never be resolved. Even solved cases like this one have loose threads. We've seen it so many times before. Another notable defense witness was Ruth Sally, Sue Ann's mother. The two hadn't spoken in about four years at that point, but she did still have contact with Jimmy. Ruth testified that in February 1980, shortly after Jimmy got in trouble for the stolen credit cards and kicked out, he told her that he wanted to get even with Chris for tattling. He told Ruth that he was going to kill Chris. Ruth wrote it down, what Jimmy had said, and talked to her husband about it later, but they figured he was just blowing off steam. In the past, Jimmy had gotten angry at some other extended family member and had made a similar threat. But, I mean, he didn't go through with it. He was just venting. So they didn't take it seriously. Then after Jimmy's arrest, Ruth said he called her frequently from the jail, and he had a few different stories when they would talk. One time he denied he was involved entirely. Another time he confessed that he did it. But the most important call was one shortly after Jimmy's arrest. He called Ruth and said that he and Paul had done it, and they actually had come up with a story that they would tell in case they ever got caught. And that story was to pin it on Sue Ann. But it was a lie and that she had nothing to do with it. Well, I'm sure everyone understood Ruth's testimony, her intentions. I don't know how many people really believed her testimony. The state did a decent job portraying her as a mother trying to save her daughter from prison. But this argument that Jimmy lied to get back at his mother for everything was the thread throughout the entire defense. And if we remove Suzanne's statement to the police that she overheard this conversation, the defense is frankly plausible. Sue Ann had left Jimmy. After she left, his life was unstable. When he reconnects with her, which wasn't even at her insistence, it was at Suzanne's, he finds out she's living in this nice home, raising another son. Then Chris tells on Jimmy and gets him kicked out. Once again, Sue Ann choosing this other son over him. But the prosecution spun the same emotions and resentment the other way. If Jimmy was jealous and hurt 
that his mother chose Chris over him, it made it even more likely that he would align with her when it looked like she wanted Chris gone. The state's closing statement focused on the absurdity of Sue Ann asking her 17-year-old son with a history of drug and psychological issues to resolve a conflict with a 13-year-old. There was no rational reason to enlist Jimmy's help unless it was to physically hurt Chris. But the defense continued with their argument that this was Jimmy getting back at his stepbrother by killing him and then getting back at his mother by framing her. The jury took the case midday on the eighth day of the trial, and about two hours into their deliberations, they listened to Suzanne's taped statement again. They continued to deliberate until breaking at 6.30 without a verdict. The next day, they were back at it and spent pretty much all day going over the case. In the late afternoon, they announced a verdict. On Friday, May 7th, 1982, 39-year-old Sue Ann Hobson was found guilty of murder and conspiracy to commit murder. She was then given a life sentence. However, due to sentencing and parole laws at the time, Sue Ann was first eligible for parole just seven years later in 1989. It was denied, even though Ed lobbied for her release. The board denied it due to the heinous nature of the crime and because she wouldn't take responsibility for her role in it. In August 1993, Sue Ann divorced Ed so that he could move on with his life. Also in the 1990s, Ed joined the Kansas City chapter of Parents of Murdered Children and found a lot of support and healing. He also found purpose, leading meetings, getting involved in criminal justice initiatives, and speaking publicly about his loss. But he would remain largely silent about Sue Ann, about her guilt or her innocence, and he would, on the surface, appear to be fairly apathetic about her parole chances. One thing Parents of Murdered Children does is help families navigate the legal system, including opposing parole for murderers. The organization even filed petitions against Jimmy and Paul getting parole. But in 2003, Ed made the news locally when he stood up in favor of Sue Ann's release. She had been in prison for 20 years at that point. Jimmy had already been paroled in 1999 and moved out of state. Paul was paroled in 2000 and also moved out of state. They were both discharged from parole after four years, meaning the teens who actually shot and killed Chris after making him dig his own grave served less time than Sue Ann. Ed opposed both of those releases, but believing Sue Ann was innocent, he had quietly supported her release attempts over the years. This was the first time he was doing so publicly. With the other two killers out, it seemed that Sue Ann did have a good shot at parole as well. Most people in Parents of Murdered Children did not know his views on Sue Ann's innocence, so this took them by surprise. Advocating for parole was not what they did. 
and Ed was torn between a group that meant a lot to him and a woman he believed was wrongfully convicted. But Ed was so convinced Sue Ann was innocent that he even said he would remarry her if she was released. Ed Hobson has endured a lot of harsh judgments over the decades, a lot. Some people believe he is choosing a woman over his son. Some more generous people believe he's simply been manipulated. And there aren't a lot of people, or any I've seen from the reading I've done extensively in articles and comment sections, there aren't a lot of people who think he's right. The Sue Ann is Innocent Club has very few other members, I'll put it that way. And personally, I have not spent a lot of time deciding how I feel because I just can't get past the fact that I'm judging a grieving father. At the root of this, he and I just have a difference of opinion over whether Sue Ann was wrongfully convicted or not. And I don't walk through life expecting people to agree with me, and I certainly do not walk through life in Ed Hobson's shoes. So his choices, his beliefs, his faith in Sue Ann, none of that is for me to evaluate. Anyway, Sue Ann's parole was denied at this point. According to the parole board, Jimmy and Paul were allowed out earlier because they admitted their guilt and accepted responsibility while Sue Ann did not. Though not released, Ed did remarry Sue Ann in 2004 while she was incarcerated. In all, Sue Ann was turned down for parole eight times before it was granted in February 2011 when Sue Ann was 68 years old. She had spent roughly 30 years in prison. Sue Ann moved into her childhood home in Prairie Village, Kansas, that she had inherited from her parents when they passed away while she was behind bars. Ed, as her husband, was already living there. Sue Ann Hobson has continued to maintain her innocence. 